everybody. Welcome to this episode of Inside Insights, podcast powered by Zappy. You know who I am. My name is Ryan, and you know who she is. Her name is Patricia Montestioca, my co-host, joining me each and every week. Patricia, what's happening? Oh, I'm enjoying the last of the benevolent fall weather. It's been a little chilly, but not, not ridiculously cold, and I'm enjoying every minute of it in my dog walks. Yeah, it's really nice. I like the coziness. The fire's back on. Um, and, uh, we're about 10 days away from getting a Christmas tree, which is kind of cool. What do you do for Thanksgiving, Patricia? What's your Thanksgiving? Oh, I am full. This is where my, all of my, my Americana comes out. I mean, you know, I'm a Colombian born and U S raised. So what I, it's been my mission in life to bring Thanksgiving into everybody that doesn't have a Thanksgiving life. So I have, um, I have been spreading the Thanksgiving cheers, my favorite holiday. I cook as much as I can for as many people as I can. Sometimes I've had two or three different like holiday celebrations. I'm going home for, um, for Thanksgiving to be with my oh, boyfriend nice. and honey. And, um, and we're going to be doing, we do usually a friends thing, a friends giving and then a family giving. Oh, I like that. Friendsgiving's yeah. cool. I never, never really did a Friendsgiving. I'm really close to where I grew up. So my family's just close by, but I, I love the idea of it. Um, I also think it's cool that you bring in people who are, uh, you know, yep. not close Teaching to family them. or friends. Yep. Teaching them. Uh, Fun fact, Thanksgiving is my favorite holiday. Two. Uh, it's by far my favorite holiday. And I'll tell you why. There's no expectations. Yes. You eat good food with good people, have good times, and there's not a lot of pressure or, you know, it's just, it's chill. Um, so I'm, I'm very, uh, very thankful for Thanksgiving. I'm very thankful for you. I'm very thankful for you too, Kelsey. Um, yes, Kelsey. And uh, I'm excited for a break. It's going to be nice. A couple of days off. And the other cool thing about Thanksgiving is, it's always the same weekend as my wife's birthday, which oh, means nice. we always get a babysitter and we always cut loose a little bit, have a little party, <laughs> you know? So, um, yeah, we're going to have a, we're going to have a good time. Happy okay. Thanksgiving to you, all of our listeners. We appreciate you. And happy birthday to your wife early. Jill Barry. And this is the time every single year that I get to remind her that she's two years older than me for two weeks. <laughs> he's my sugar mama. Um, she's such a cougar. Yep, she is. She is. Absolutely. I outkicked my coverage in life. Um, and I'm very grateful for that. Um, but nobody came here to talk about uh, Jill Barry, although she's a lovely lady. Um, today, we're going to have a conversation with um, somebody who's very near and dear to me, my, my coach, Dr. Nora Infante. She's um, a woman who I met uh, just under two years ago. Um, the truth is, as of today, we're very close friends, but she's made a huge impact on my life. She coaches executives in all different um, types of companies, all different industries. She comes at it from an emotional intelligence point of view, but also uh, she's done a lot of work around the impact of nature on leadership and creativity. And you know, so much of our podcast is designed to give you tangible tips to do your job better. But if you're not at your best and you're not leading your teams to be at their best, a lot of the tangible tips and tactics that we give you here on the podcast will fall short. Um, and there is no one size fits all template to leadership. You, you know, each person's different. They're motivated in different ways. And, uh, I, so I just thought, I thought it was a really good idea to, to, um, allow Nora to enlighten us. Um, and so I hope you enjoy the interview. Let's get into it. All right, let's do it. Nora, I'm so excited to have you. Thank you for making the time. Very happy to be here, Ryan. So as I said in the preamble, um, Nora is uh, a lovely human being who came into my life, uh, what, a year plus ago? Mm -hmm. A year and a half? Yeah. 
something like that. <laughs> something like that. Y'all, you know what? Like somebody was telling me a story the other day of something that happened three years ago. And I was like, yeah, last year when it happened. I know I was in California a, a few weeks ago and was somewhere and the guy was, was like reminding me that what I remembered is just like yesterday was 30 years ago. I'm like, no way. Do not tell me that was 30 years ago that the swimming hole was here and it hasn't been here for 30 years. <laughs> Bring back the swimming hole, California. Come on. Uh-huh. What are you thinking? All right. Well, I'm really excited that you uh, were able to join us. Um, so you're, um, you're a unique guest, right? So we're usually talking with practitioners of insights and marketing, giving people tangible ideas they can bring to work. But you know what? Work's hard. Leadership is hard. Navigating bureaucracy and corporate culture is really hard. And um, you and I have a very private every two week discussion about all the things I have to navigate. And um, there's just so much good you've brought to me personally that I, I thought uh, it would be selfish not to share some of your insights with everybody else. Um, so thank you for making the time. So before we get going, um, let's just talk a little bit about you. So I, I gave you a bit of an intro before we got here, but um, your background, what got you into the line of work you're in and, and say a little bit about like, not, not just your journey to get to this place, but the types of people, the types of organizations that you've done done your work with, because I know it's it's quite vast. Um, and then we'll get into kind of the meat of the discussion. Okay. Um, well, I think I'm probably a little bit different than most executive coaches in terms of how I got to this work. I was a, a clinical psychologist. I still am a clinical psychologist. That was my entree into this world. Um, and, uh, my, when I was doing my pre and postdoc fellowship, it was in, uh, geriatric psychology and, uh, and what I was really interested in was, was how does the brain work? How are behaviors and cognition affected by the brain? And so the whole world of neuropsych in geriatric, the, in geriatric psych is just so fascinating. And so that really is how the, my first entree into curiosity about why people do what they do from a neurological point of view. And um, I had a very diverse private practice, all kinds of different people, kinds of situations. Um, And uh, through a few clients ended up doing some litigation consulting where I was working with criminal um, defense attorneys and their executive clients. And they'd bring me in when they had some really good person that had some leader of who's very successful in every other respect of their lives, except for they screwed up in some major way and, uh, and we're now facing criminal charges. And so, you know, they wanted to understand how could this seemingly good person, very successful in business, um, do something so dumb. And so I would spend a lot of time talking to these executives and getting some insight into just what their what their thinking was, what their lives were like, what their how they saw their business. And it was my first sort of aha moment around emotional intelligence and that you could have leaders who were super bright, super um, ambitious, but lacked this incredibly important aspect of leadership, which is the self-awareness part. 
And so they would, they lacked judgment, they lacked impulse control, um, they lacked humility, and, and inevitably, most of the time, they were shocked that these things happened to them, that they got caught and they had a hard time understanding why was it so wrong for me to skim off the top? Or, you know, why was it so wrong for me to take a bribe from that, from that you know, uh, local uh, politician? And so that was my first introduction to working and coaching executives was around helping them develop insight and awareness to why they had done these things that were really so, so damaging to the businesses they had so carefully built up. Um, so in my, in my private practice, I was working with executives who were in trouble with the law. And, uh, and at the same time, I was recruited by a small boutique firm in uh, New York to do, uh, to do work in South America. I was born in South America, and so I'm bilingual, to help them with mergers and acquisitions and help them identify high potentials and, and you know, do some leadership development of the high potentials in the context of these acquisitions. And so I went from learning about executives and executive culture um, through these criminal cases to learning about organizations through doing consulting work in Latin America um, in very large multinational companies, buying up smaller companies all through Argentina and Brazil and Venezuela and, uh, and really sort of, you know, on the ground learned what was my education. I, I did not go to school to learn about organizations and learn about leadership, but I just by virtue of my clinical practice and my reputation got, um, got sort of introduced to this whole world of organizations and leadership. You know, I kept both of these going, a clinical practice and the organization work for a while. And then I joined um, RHR, which is a professional services firm, RHR International. I joined them as a, as a partner. And, uh, and was with them for a few years until I left and, and decided I really, really love working with individual leaders and small senior teams around emotional development and just helping them understand uh, uh, what role they play, not just as the person that comes up with strategy and the person who makes you know these big business decisions, but what role do they play in terms of creating culture, um, in terms of just, you know, making the organization a thriving, healthy, happy place to be. Yes. And I could speak firsthand to, uh, to a lot of this, but we'll talk about me later because we, that's usually. Well, and, and as I was saying that I was thinking of you, I'm thinking because <laughs> you're a good. By the way, I don't skim off the top people. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> but there's an interesting thing about like what you said there about what got you into it and a linkage to some of the stuff we have worked on. So to be vulnerable with my guests, I mean, I'm a hard charging, emotionally driven person. And a year and a half ago, I didn't have controls over uh, things like I called them triggers or when I would bark or and so, you know, I think a lot of people with the best of intentions and other skills get to a place in their career with a certain set of technique. And then if they don't unlearn them, they can get themselves into trouble or get into bad situations or 
probably work, probably best case, just hit a ceiling of what they can actually do. Oh, right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And get really frustrated and, and don't understand why. And often the bad behavior comes from there because they really haven't developed that sort of that self-awareness and frustration can be a, a destructive thing. And so, okay. So let's, uh, let's zoom out a little bit. So you work with executives, big companies, small companies, all different sectors, correct? Yes. I, I love that about this profession is that I get to be everywhere. I have been on the, the, the floor of where rockets are being built with um, coaching leaders in aerospace. I've been in financial services. I work with architects. I've um, uh, you know, been in software development. I've been in healthcare. And so it's just, it's so exciting from a professional point of view to have access to all of these different industries. Um, and, uh, you know, they're, they're obviously all very different in what they do in the world. But what's really fascinating to me is often I get asked by potential coaches, you know, so what industry do you work in? It's wanting to make sure that I can understand their industry. But what's really been so, so fascinating to me is that when it comes to leadership, yeah, it's in, the industries are, are, are interesting, but that's not, the, that's not where my work is is not really about that industry. And so I just, I find that there are universal skills that are absolutely critical to a leader's success, whether he is, you know, he or she are building rockets or are, you know, running a huge financial services firm, that there are just, there are certain um, skills that are universally important uh, within successful leadership. So let's unpack the, the skills. So yeah, that diverse experience. Zoom out a bit and tell me, like, what are the what are the constant skills that you think define a great leader? Um, and then we'll flip it on its head to talk about where you see people struggle. For me, really, a lot of it falls under the umbrella of emotional intelligence. And 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 I'm you know, and I I use that, and I get sort of annoyed by that term now because it's like it's everywhere and everything's emotional intelligence. But I really, the reality is that it's an it's a an important umbrella. Um, in many ways, I think it's one of the most important umbrellas because what's underneath that, um, the ability to listen, the ability to have curiosity about other points of view. Um, uh, I mean, all of the, the, and these things that I'm gonna say are all, all things that I, I think are just tremendously important in, in, in good leadership. Uh, the, the ability to manage one's emotions, you know, we all come to any situation with our histories, um, with our, our, our baggage, our, the things that, that trigger us, the things that make us react versus really be able to sort of pause and, uh, and be deliberate about our actions. We all have those buttons that get pushed. Um, so, you know, I, a good leader has got to have an, uh, a high level of self-awareness, um, uh, an ability to look at themselves in the context of the bigger picture, to understand how their demeanor impacts the team, it has to be able to know how to have a difficult conversation 
that is going to leave somebody uh, not feeling deflated, but actually maybe feel inspired to change, then I think a good leader is always looking at the, the bigger context of their impact and also looking at the small details of their own behavior, of, their of individuals on their team behavior. There's just this like holistic way of, of engaging the world um, around them that uh, I think is what makes, you know, a leader, a, a sensitive and uh, inspiring person to, to work for and can get things done. It's, it's interesting because I never really had this thought, but there are, there are potentially bad leaders of people, quote unquote, bad leaders of people who were good at being strategically high level or in the weeds, but yeah. I think missed that piece that you're describing, which is being able to do that with the strategy being about them and their impact versus their PL, their department. So I, I think that self-awareness point is really important to, and, and, and it's, it's hard for people. So um, yeah. I guess, what are some of your kind of go-to steps to get somebody more emotionally aware of what the, what their emotional triggers are and what those impact layers are? I mean, obviously with you and I we went through a, a long coaching program. Are there any kind of shortcuts that you would give my listeners of like advice to kind of where to start? I mean, most of, most of the coaching that I do involves uh, 360 and, uh, and I'm an enormous fan of 360s, you know, whether your coach goes out and solicits 360 feedback on, on you or not, whether you yourself go do it. I think that that point of feedback is so critical to, to helping you develop that self-awareness. Um, because self-reporting is one thing and self and, and, you know, observing ourselves is one thing, but we all have all kinds of bias constantly, but we especially have biases in terms of ourselves, the stories we tell ourselves about how we are and how, you know, the things we're good at and the things we're not good at and that may or may not be accurate. And so I think like is part of, you know, developing your self-awareness, getting feedback from others paying attention to others, other people's responses to you. If someone is, if you're constantly having, or you or, you know, seem to frequently be having negative interactions uh, and you're interpreting it as, you know, gosh, what's wrong with all of these people? Um, well, no, I think it's like self-awareness is what, what's wrong. What am I doing? That is what's the pattern here? Um, right. you know, the, what's the, the, and that's another, I mean, pattern recognition is an, is an, an enormous part of self-awareness, like having, being able to sort of stop and, and look at what are the patterns that are happening in my leadership and my, in my world around me that just, I can't seem to get away from and identifying them and, you know, really doing an examination as to what the, what the cause of it is. And, uh, and I think that that's, again, where feedback is so helpful uh, and it takes courage. I mean, and that's another part of, of, of good and courageous leadership and is, 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 is to get the feedback. It takes courage to ask for real feedback. A lot of leaders are very proud and because they've, they got to a certain level by being really smart and in control, they don't want to hear the bad feedback. They don't, they would rather keep doing what they think is working and not be opening up cans and worms that they don't, that they don't want to hear and they don't know how to deal with. So I really think that as uh, the first step is, is how are you going to get that honest perspective, that honest feedback about, about your leadership and what are the patterns that you are recognizing um, that are happening around you? So yeah, my plus one piece of advice is 
listen to that, even the most critical feedback, there's something to learn. But I, I have a question for you. So uh, you've, you've had the benefit of coaching executives in big corporations, dare I say, perhaps uh, not the most psychologically safe environment, maybe a little bit bureaucratic. So how does a leader, let's just say I'm a director or I'm a VP in the hierarchy of an organization where my boss might, might not want feedback, but I'm like, you know what? I want to get better. How do I create the space to be vulnerable, but then also to make it okay for my teams to be vulnerable? Because my hypothesis is if I'm working in an environment where all around me, that's not safe, I might not get actual feedback from my teams because they're scared. Or perhaps maybe today's Inside Insights podcast episode has had a penny drop moment for me where it says, oh shit, I probably should listen. But perhaps your team stopped talking to you. Right. Um, I mean, how, I, I know you've been in this scenario. How do you how do you navigate the crap around some people? Because some people might have the best intentions. They just don't know where to start. Well, I think that it really, I mean, it's back to sort of, you know, you, you mentioned the word, word vulnerability and, uh, and courage. Those insights aren't going to just come knocking at your door. And, uh, and yeah, a lot of cultures may feel like they're not safe environments, but relationships happen one-on-one. And so I, you know, changing culture often starts with just the one-on-ones. And so, you know, I think that when you're in a culture that may, that may not feel safe to, to solicit feedback, um, to have the conversations you want to have, you start, you, you look for where's the safest place in this whole matrix for me to start having honest conversation. And you build out from there because the, the reality is that I think at the end of the day, people want to be even, even the most stoic and controlling person somewhere inside. They want to be, they want to know that you can have a vulnerable conversation and it, and it will be okay. And that you can show the your weaknesses or your doubts and be okay. And Mm -hmm. so I think that, you know, when you're in a culture where it doesn't sort of globally feel safe, you look for that one or two place where you can start and you start that conversation and you build from there. I like that. That's just like also change management 101, right? Like don't try to boil the ocean today, go where there's momentum and use that. Um, Okay. So if I'm not a leader and I'm listening to this and my boss really needs to hear some feedback, how have you helped? Like, how do they go about that? Cause I I see it. Sometimes I, I see people, plagued by just being scared, frankly, of what they're going to hear upstairs. I know that probably if you and I were having a beer, we'd say, go get a better job, but it might not be that easy, uh, despite the fact that there's a great resignation. And I think uh, to all the control freak, uh, scare tactic, information hoarding executives out there, your days are numbered, but they're still going to be working tomorrow. So uh, how do you, how do you navigate that if you're in that environment? I think that if you've got a good boss, even if they're tyrannical, <laughs> a good <laughs> boss is still is going to want, they're, they're not going to want to be replacing their team. They want to know that, they're, that, that their team is working to improve themselves and to get better. And so I always think, I think that a difficult conversation is best approached starting with yourself from a position of, humility, 
in some way. So if you want to go to your boss and give your boss feedback, for example, I don't, what, 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 like, give, give me, why don't you give me an example of like, you know, somebody wants to tell their boss what? I don't feel like I can bring new ideas to you or the way that you interact makes it really hard for me to push what you've asked me to do forward or the fact that your boss can derail everything we're doing means that I don't really feel motivated to try new things. Well, I think that, you know, it's always important to keep it on and uh, on what you're trying to accomplish. So I, as, as, as your direct report, am really wanting to grow and wanting to move this agenda forward but I'm frustrated and I'm coming to you for some insight as to what, how can we do this better? How can I do this better? Because, you know, um, I don't feel like I'm getting the, I, I think it's important to, to, to stay away from it, especially in the initial conversations, anything that feels too accusatory or like you're right, doing, right. you're doing this and therefore it's making me feel like this. I like to stay away from feelings at that level of conversation, it's really more about what is what is the job that's trying to be that's that that's supposed to be getting done, and 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 what's my role in getting this job done, and what am I experiencing as sort of frustrating obstacles, um, without with trying to not get personal about it, even if it is personal, and then you sort of you know it, it's it's really this sort of a, a nuanced dance, but I think it's where I see so often um, uh, people make the mistake is when they start talking too much about their feelings too soon with their boss or with somebody else around feedback. You make me feel unheard. You make me feel um, um, like I'm not getting the opportunities. Those are, those are not typically going to be productive conversations because you've just put somebody on the defensive. Um, but if you come to the conversation with the mutual goal, coming at it from the point of view that we're here to get something done and, and I, I need help from you, boss, to move this along better than is, than, than is happening. It makes perfect sense, Nora, because it's, it, it's anchoring in a common goal versus attacking somebody. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and I'll, I'll go on a slight tangent here. It's off topic, but this links to, I think, a lot of the societal strain that I see where, uh, and I, I think we've talked about this. I have a huge problem with this cancel culture stuff because it's like somebody does something incorrectly and then they've been sort of jettisoned, right? And, and I think like l- linking to what unites us and then discussing how we get there is a much better way than saying, I can't believe you ever thought that because most people aren't self-aware to say, oh, that's your perspective. I'm going to respond. Most people with the best of intentions are going to react to that. Totally. No. And I mean, I think it's like, it's something that businesses have to be careful with because the culture on the one hand, it's really great that we talk about emotional intelligence in, in business. The whole cancel culture is so embedded in how people in feelings. And, you know, I feel like this person, this person dissed me, this person um, insulted me, therefore I'm never going to talk to them again. And then you just shut down, you just shut down all kinds of possibility and all kinds of potential because of feelings that really weren't managed and weren't really 
checked out. And, and so while, while I'm a, an executive coach, I still think of myself as a, as a clinical psychologist in many ways. And very often with my clients, I end up talking about, about emotions within the safety of our relationship to try and help them keep that emotional stuff within our, within, within what we're working with and not getting acted out within the organization. And there's so many, I mean, emotions, obviously we're full, we're, that's what we're made of. Yeah, it is. And I think I, one of the things I've, I've sort of been, well, I've been learning, I guess, is emotion isn't the same thing as passion. And you can be passionate and still be, you can be very passionate about your work, but still be in control of your emotions. We've spoken about this because sometimes I work with people in big companies and I take my work so seriously that if they react in a way that is outside of what I understood our contract to be, right. you remember this, there was a time where I took that personally right. and it's not personal. It's how somebody's engaging in their set of circumstances. Um, and, and so I, I think, understanding that you can be passionate, but in control of your emotions is a really important learning for people. Yeah. And I think also the example that you just gave illustrates in terms of emotional intelligence, that ability to zoom out. So when you're having a reaction, part of an emotional reaction and feeling and taking, taking something personally, which happens all the time, everybody, I mean, that's just the way that we're wired. Um, but is to understand that fact that this is something, this reaction that I'm having, it's a wiring thing. It's not necessarily personal. And part of the emotional intelligence is what's happening here that isn't just my reaction. You know, what's the bigger context here? There's so much, we're, we're just these little people in this sea of right. lots of people. <laughs> and so, you know, but when we're feeling it, it te- we tend to take up all of the space and tend to, you know, want to impose our realities on everybody else's reality. And, and it's just this big, it can get really messy, which is why I just, you know, I, I love you in the way that you use and, you, you know, utilize coaching to really just help you get that perspective of, wait a minute, what's mine? What's like, what's the reality check here? You know, because what's, what's belongs to me that I need to work on and not be bringing into the organization or that isn't about me. That maybe is about them. I mean, it's this, this really, the act of fine observation is just, is so important. How do you, how do you build your observation skills? You know, not everybody's taught to observe. Most of us are taught to pay attention to ourselves, but not so much to pay attention to, you know, what's around us. Yeah, that's right. I mean, so like, so in my, in my sort of own reflection is like, what are the things that make me react? Yeah. What are the things that make my team react? Right. Understanding those two things does. And by the way, I think there's a lot of, a lot of conflation of EQ, self-awareness, psychological safety, emotional intelligence. That means people feel like they can't be assertive. Right. I think that's bullshit. I think if you're aware of your own baggage and the vantage point of others, it's still your responsibility as a leader to lead. It just right. doesn't always mean you have to be the one with the answer or you don't react and you think about things a little bit differently. You got to you got to be attuned with what's going on around you and I think it's a it's a skill that a lot of companies don't invest in for their leaders is actually the tooling of understanding yourself and your own and in my case 
probably six or seven things would trigger me to react in a not favorable way. Right. Simply writing those down made a huge difference in terms of not doing that. <laughs> like, right. Right, so, right, right. You know, and I think it's like, it's such a fine balance in leadership because ultimately, you know, the role of the leader is to help is to facilitate not, you don't do it for others, but you facilitate creating a space where, where others, where, where you're paying attention, where, where do I need to step in and where do I need to just sit back and let them find their way? Because ultimately it's really important that they find their way and take responsibility and ownership over their own, the, their, the, their own work, their own teams. Um, and, uh, and so that, that, that stance, that sort of engaged, that active listening, that active observation, you know, that may look sort of somewhat passive sometimes, but it's not, it's in anything, but I mean, you are truly, you know, you are, you're all ears, you're all eyes, you are fully engaged, but you're also not jumping in to fix it immediately. I mean, there's nothing worse for someone who is trying to grow and makes a little bit of a mistake in a meeting and then has their boss like jump in and take the reins away from them. Like, okay, well you screwed up and you said that wrong. And so now I'm going to like, you know, take over and, and humiliate you in front of everybody and not give you a chance to recover, you know? And so I think just that, yeah, just that sort of that stance of being the guide, but that is not, isn't inserting himself or herself unless unless it's really right. And that takes discernment, that takes maturity. Maturity is a word that you and I have talked about a lot, um, uh, is, is, you know, it takes maturity to be a good leader. It, it does. And, and th- that comes with, uh, oh, Inside Insights podcast guest. We have Cal Barry gracing us with his presence. You can't, you can't avoid this stuff. Say hi to him. There he is. Um, and you know, a version of me a year and a half ago would have had a negative emotional reaction to my son shouting at me. This is actually, it's not a plan. You okay, Cal? Uh, I'm not sure. I need to finish my podcast, buddy. This is a good transition because I was going to ask you about, you know what? This has never happened before. I'm kind of glad it did. You know, like this is real life people. Yeah, no, exactly. But it's also, I mean, and that, and that's what we're talking about. It's like, you know, it's not perfect. And, and, you know, and it's like crazy how in the context of business, people carry around this expectation of perfection for themselves, for the, for the team. Um, uh, you know, I've seen you through the course of our work together, have some moments where things did not go well. Uh, and you to real, you really, instead of beating, you know, beating yourself up or beating anybody up, we're like, okay, how do we take this and try and learn something from it? You know, how to like, what are the, what are the gifts in the imperfection? I mean, life is messy. And, and there is no way that then businesses and people, because that's who populates the businesses, aren't going to be messy, you know. And so being able to do what you just did right now with your son coming in is, is you know, holding both, holding both things at the same time. I'm here. I'm here as a professional. I'm doing my podcast here. And, you know, my son needs something and he's crying and whiny and I got to figure this out for a moment. 
And so yeah, I'm going to, I'm not going to get angry at him. I'm not going to like cut off the show. I'm just going to, you know, you spoke to him beautifully and he's often crying somewhere else. Off he goes. Yeah. He's, he's now in search of mom. You know, but I think, there, so I, wa- I wanted to, Cal was a great transition, but let's just stay here for a sec. So I think some of this has to do with glorification. So the mm-hmm. older, the older kind of structures and companies of become the boss, right? idealized, like idolized the boss. And then in today's economy or, or market, you've got, I think, a glorification of unicorns and big venture capital and exponential hyper growth. Yeah. And the reality is nothing is that simple or linear, right? Like, like, so uh, one of the, one of the companies in our space, Qualtrics, the darling of our industry, incredible IPO, incredible business. They built the company for 15 years. It wasn't, they weren't a unicorn 18 or 12 years ago. Right. It was a lot of trial error, success, trial error, success. And I think it is one of the things that I think it's another important thing for leaders to do is to hold the space for people to fail. Because if you're not failing, you're not innovating, right? Like it's not. I'm going to take the, I'm going to take this in in this direction, which you'll be pleased with. So in nature, (laughs) that doesn't happen. If you're going to build for the long run, if you're going to be a company that wants to be around, you have to build in systems that are sustainable systems that are that are you know built on adaptability and part of adaptability is failing is knowing where the weak spots are and being able to then you know um, build around those weak spots adjust according to those weak spots if you grow too fast you you probably don't know really well where your weak spots are until, I mean, and it's just, it's just like architecture 101. And, you know, is, is that you, you have to build a strong foundation in order to, to move up. And that's one of my concerns about just the unicorn culture is that, you know, there isn't enough emphasis on failure as being okay. Um, as being like what we learn and get stronger from and build a more adaptable organization as a result of the lessons we learn along the way. I find it somewhat as sort of a distraction. There's a lot of um, uncertainty. I mean, there's a lot to be uneasy about. This sort of, you know, fantasy creature that is kind of immune to reality because it doesn't really live in reality. And uh, and so that's, but we're pay, pay, you know, placing all these bets on unicorn. The unicorn doesn't live by the real laws of, of nature. It's, it's a freak of nature. <laughs> I worry that we are creating this distraction that is exciting because it, it, it's, it's fast, it's big, it's colorful, it's, it's rich, that we're creating a distraction from dealing with the realities of, of our current situation. And, you know, I mean, and I got a lot of respect for a lot of companies that are valued at over a billion dollars, which is what unicorns are. A lot of it comes down to finding product market fit at the right time. But if you don't take the time to introspect, well, you may lose product market fit, right? Because even that is a moving target, right? Markets move, customers exactly. move, people move. I mean, so exactly. that the, the muscle to be introspective is super key. So, all right, yeah. I got, I don't have a lot. I ran out of time with you because we've been having so much fun. But that's so, right. 
point about maturity also, you know, just like the contrast between those two things. Yeah, that's exactly right. Is to say things are good. Why are they good? Yeah. Things are bad. Why are they not bad? How can we make them better? Um, because it's, it, you know, I, I could speak to this as somebody who's been building a company and have had ups, downs, peaks, valleys, whatever you want to call it. There's greatness in the ride and there's learning at the highs and there's learning at the lows. And if you, if you can harness both of them, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah. So you do a lot of work and you've helped me vocalize my relationship with nature that I never had the vocabulary for before I met you. And I think the reason I want to, I want to sort of end with this topic is the last year and a half started by people saying, isn't it lovely that we get to see our boss's dog or kid and it makes everybody more human. I think we've quickly learned that uh, it's really hard to lead teams through a little box of zoom. It's really hard to connect as human beings, to get creative, to be inspired. Um, and I'd love to, I'd love for you to reflect on what you see, but also you do a lot of coaching around people's creativity and leadership and how that relates to their relationship with nature. Yeah. Talk to us a little bit about these things. I'm so glad you asked my favorite thing. So, so this is the thing that's really interesting. I'm going to bring it back to emotional intelligence for just a moment that uh, in terms of self-awareness, when we talk about the ability to have perspective, the ability to control impulses, the ability to feel empathy, these were all things, these, these, are, are, these happen in the prefrontal cortex and the limbic system that for a long time, things like meditation were, were for people who were teaching emotional intelligence, you know, tried to get people to meditate because that helps activate those parts of the brain that give you that perspective, give you that impulse control. Meditation is really hard for a lot of people. Um, uh, and what it turns out is that nature, observing nature will do the same things to your brain. And so, you know, just like you, I, I love that sometimes you're like, let's, let's do our, let's have our session as a walk and talk, or where you'll say, you know what, I think I need to go and just go be outside for a while so I can really sort of, you know, rock this problem differently. So there is, there is, there is plenty that shows, there's lots of research that shows that nature helps activate these parts of our brain that are really important for, for emotional intelligence leadership. In terms of what's happening now with this whole Zoom reality, that is really increasingly disconcerting. I think at first, everybody did a beautiful job adapting. That's what we're designed to do. But as this goes on, there is a really, there's a really frightening thing that's happening, which is it's cutting our, our senses off. So I'm looking at you right now and my whole experience of you, Ryan, I've never, this just blows my mind that you and I have never met in person. And so, so we have this like gorgeous relationship that is really, I think, probably maybe an outlier to what happens in prolonged relationships where you're just looking at somebody on a screen because our, our whole, our brains are not wired to just be looking at this little box all day long. We get, our brains require sensory stimulation. It requires sensory, when earlier we're talking about zooming in and zooming out, well, that's something, I mean, we're not talking about zooming, like zoom in on your screen and zoom out. <laughs> out like, you know, going outside and being aware, we, we're animals. We are meant to be absorbing information around us. When we were in meetings before in person, you would like, you know, spend time transitioning from one meeting to the next. 
you would have time to think about, you know, what this, this next meeting, and how do I want to show up and how, like, what should be my tone of voice? And when you step into the meeting, you look at their body language, there's all of this other stuff that we've been robbed from. And, and so, you know, we don't have these points of pause between meetings, which in and of itself is not a good thing. So we're just going back to back to back, but our brain is being super stressed by having to just stare forward at a screen constantly. And so, you know, it's just, it's, I I really do worry about the quality of decision-making, the quality of being able to get a bigger perspective. I mean, research shows that literally going outside and looking at a big perspective translates to then looking at your own life, looking at your own dilemmas and problems and coming up with novel solutions and create, you know, finding creativity. If you're staring forward all the time and trying to figure out, having a conversation with somebody, trying to figure out a complex problem, the chances of you coming up with a creative solution here, right here, like I'm staring at you intently right now is like so much less You're not, you're so less likely to find that. And if my gosh, if anything, the kinds of challenges that companies are up against right now require creativity, require novel solutions. And so we're, we're, it's kind of this betwixt and between of, of, of this state of, of being entrapped by our, by this new virtual reality of business while needing to be more creative than we probably have ever been. And, and, you know, I, I really don't know my, my personal solution. You did this in taking your team um, to Iceland and really getting people outside uh, to experience. We've talked about awe and the, the sort of the neurology of awe and how the experience of awe in the brain then translates to whatever you want to focus on, you know, your, mm-hmm. your personal life, your business challenges. And so that expansiveness, we have to find ways um, as, as companies to, to invite expansiveness, the experience of expansiveness, not just the concept, but the experience of sensory integration, expansive experience um, within your teams whatever that looks like, um, you know, giving people time off and making them go uh, uh, be outside. But I think it's just something that needs to be addressed more, more explicitly as, as a challenge to, you know, what's going to help people generate the kinds of creativity, the kinds of relationship building. It's very hard. Again, I think you and I are a little bit of outliers because of our personalities and just the kismet of, of our connection. I think it's very hard for people to build relationships this way. It is. And some people just, it's just not a comfortable place. I mean, so I think, you know, one of the concerns, I remember reading this in HBR probably last May, productivity was the question. Truth yeah. is, people work too much from their yeah. Zoom boxes. So I think as leaders, we need to encourage not not productivity, but outcomes. What needles are we trying to move? Because yeah. we don't employ, like we you can't lead people that are knowledge workers the way that people used to be led when they were factory workers, which most of, a lot of those jobs may maybe are being replaced by machines or what have you. Right. If you're looking for exponential thinking, breakthrough creativity, You've also got to employ some different things. So there's a couple of quick tactics. We can give some people some life hacks here. If you have a one-on-one 
and somebody's not sharing screens, do it with AirPods, go outside and do a walk. Uh huh. If you're having a hard conversation or you have a big problem, don't make a decision on the Zoom meeting. Let it breathe. Encourage everybody to go for a walk afterwards. If you personally feel overwhelmed, this is a little uh, hack Nora gave me the other day. If you personally feel overwhelmed, the problem that you're trying to solve is so big, stop trying to solve it for a little while. Get lost outside. Go stare at something pretty. Guess what will happen? You'll come up with the answer. Guarantee you, you will come up with the answer. It will be clear to you when you're not this close to it, you know? And I think just, uh, you know, also just on a, on a, a company culture level for everybody who needs one hour meetings. I mean, I sometimes right. they aren't necessary, but you know, as a therapist, we've been doing 50 minute hours forever. <laughs> and right. so, so, you know, it's, it's like, why not start slowly changing the culture to, we don't need back to back meetings. There's a real value. There is an, like an immeasurable value to giving people space to be able to take that pause, to be able to transition, to be able to look outside, to be able to engage. I cannot emphasize enough this whole issue of sensory stimulation. When you talk about going outside, that's why it works because yes. you're, you're, you're engaging, your brain is, is firing in ways that it doesn't otherwise when you're just locked up inside a room. So I think it's really important that companies start finding ways to give people moments to pause and engage their senses before coming back to the next meeting. It's true. Like I even, <clears throat> so back to backs will kill you, right? Like, and I'm somebody, you know this about me, I could run hard for a long time. Mm-hmm. Give me seven Zoom meetings in a day. I'm, a, I'm not as good of a husband. I'm not that good of a father. I'm like not as creative. I'm a little bit tense. Yep. Try to limit them. But also the other thing I think is important is don't just give yourself 15 minutes off. Give yourself a couple of hours a day mm-hmm. and not be on a goddamn Zoom meeting. Mm-hmm. Right. Think. Do, do something other than it. And by the way, um, I don't hate Zoom as much as I sound like. It's a lovely piece of technology. Oh, <laughs> Full we, disclosure, we Zoom's so fine. Much. It's what it does to us that I don't like when oh, we just no. too long. <laughs> no, it's not Zoom's fault. It's the way that we're managing it. Correct. It's not, it's not it, it, Zoom is, Zoom has say, I mean, in many ways, Zoom deserves a, you know, some sort of a Nobel Peace Prize for, for stepping in and not having the world economy collapse because it allowed people to continue to have meetings and, you know, whatever. But we have to get smarter about understanding that it is a tool that we need to control better, that, you know, we come first. It becomes a, this thing that we're at the mercy of. That's um, right. And, and, and I, you know, I think we do have to step up our, our conscious engagement um, of, of this time and what's required because we're going to be in it for the foreseeable future, you know. We are. And in, in some ways, there are planetary reasons for parts of our jobs being on Zoom, right? So I work for a, a, a company that's committed to, to being carbon footprint negative, which means we don't want to get on jet planes all the time. Exactly. But it's so it's how you use Zoom, but also recognizing that in-person plays a different role and that isn't always fill in a Gantt chart. That's right. what are the relationship plants, get human beings yeah. to connect, to be creative. I mean, you, you, you mentioned our Iceland trip. Um, if I was to tell my listeners that we only spent four hours a day in our week in meetings, you'd probably say, what the hell were they doing? Were they partying the whole time? Nope. Whole team's firing on all cylinders because we went and saw volcanoes and cool things and the creative discussions that were happening when there were no rules to the discussion 
I, yep. I can tell you this. Uh, I'll never get an attributable ROI on that week, but yep. I've now got the benefit of a team who's locked in, has thought big. Um, and the, those, those like relationship investments pay back over time. Um, you know, so I think as leaders create the space for your team to get together and do things and be creative outside of the rules a little bit um, and find ways to do that that don't involve going to a bar. Cause that's, that's not, that's not what I mean. I don't mean go out and drink. Yeah. No, uh, right. No, exactly. I mean, I think this is part of like, and this should be part of, of a company's strategy. How are we going to make sure that people are getting experiences that are going to keep them engaged? And you said, you know, that was the, the HBR article that engagement is beginning to really dip down. And that's because people, people's brains are dying. They're yeah. just like they're fried. So what, so what can we do as a company to help put some fresh air in there and like wake it up that it's smart business to be paying attention to those things. And it goes back to, this is a good way to end because we could talk for three hours. We usually do. Um, <laughs> it goes back to the same thing we started with self-awareness. Mm -hmm. If Absolutely. you're self-aware of yourself and your team, then you'll know that it's not all about the Gantt chart and that Zoom is a technology, not the answer to all your problems. That in-person plays a unique role given your unique culture and people, um, but you have, to be, you have to be aware of it and be intentional. Because um, yeah. by the way, folks, we're operating in a world where there is no goddamn playbook. <laughs> so throw them all out the window, right? Like there's, there's, there's no well, playbook here. Yeah, yeah, there's not. And, and, and we're making, I mean, we're, we're also writing the instructions for the generation that comes. Yes. And so, so let's really, let's like try and leave something helpful. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, Nora, you've said it all. Thank you, my friend. Um, everybody uh, that's listened to you and I and Calvary Cry is in a better place. Um, and I honestly can't thank you enough. Uh, so I'll, I'll leave you be everybody. Thanks for your time and tune into the next episode. See you, Ryan. That was a fun conversation. Um, I think Nora and I might have been uh, put on this earth to work together because her kind of thesis in psychology is like me as a human. Um, so, uh, but you know, I, I'm, I'm about two months back from taking our executive leadership team to Iceland, as I said in the interview, and we did four hours of meetings a day. And then we were outside in nature and I've not seen a group more vulnerable, more creative. Um, so this shit works. Uh, Patricia, what do you think? What were your takeaways? Wow. As a person, she's amazing. I've heard you speak, you know, tell us about her and what you learned from her in the past, but I'd never heard, you know, heard her I mean, I met her and all of that. So I was so impressed. And then finding out her boy, why she's so impressive was amazing. And it was a challenge for me to, to summarize because I, I could find very little that I could leave off the summary of, from the, your conversation. So what I did is instead of having, um, of 10 tips or a dozen tips, I have six buckets <laughs> of really good stuff, seven buckets of really good stuff that I want to share with you that I want all of you to take away because I could think of nothing in this conversation that we can't action on Monday morning. And that's what, that's what the insights, insights, insight, insights, leadership and come, people want to come listen to. That was a mess. Um, so she's had a very diverse practice and she's helped all kinds of people in different situations. And so today she shared with us tips to manage each of these things. So I'm gonna start with the first one. 
How is it that these are great questions, by the way, that you asked, Ryan? How is it the seemingly good, intelligent, and successful people do things that are uncharacteristic, wrong, or just plain dumb? Right? It happens, right? Number one, they were smart and ambitious, but they lacked emotional intelligence that was necessary to be self aware, which led them to lack judgment and impulse control. And they definitely had no humility. What are the actions that she recommended to these people when she spoke with them? Evolve their insight and self-awareness, right? So that they are aware and they know what the cause and the effect of their actions are. Strengthen contextual leadership. Remember where you are and who you are and what you're around, what's around you, so they can be aware of the world around them, not just themselves. Develop their individual and their team's emotional intelligence so they each understand the role they play in their team, not just the person that comes and comes up with the strategy, but the person that helps things evolve. Then the last two were great. And I think you said one of these, unlearn the damaging habits so that you can learn the triggers to frustration. You know, that was fantastic because sometimes there are things that you must unlearn. It's as simple as that so that you can do that. Second bucket, what are the universal skills critical to a leader's success? You asked her, you said, what are the constants that people should keep in mind? And she gave us six. Emotional intelligence, absolutely the first one. It's the most important umbrella because what's underneath that umbrella is the ability to listen, to have curiosity about other people's views. It's important. Second one in there is to manage your own emotions. Now we come to the situations with our own baggage and we have to be aware of what triggers us, what makes us react versus what helps us be able to pause and think and be deliberate about our actions. We all have those buttons. Just be aware of where yours are, right? The third one, have a high, the high level of self-awareness helps you look at yourself in context so that you know that if I'm in this context, I behave in this way. But if I'm in another context, I behave in another way. During the interview, you were all professional and then your son came in. You know, you had to juggle yourself and you had to juggle both circumstances. Sometimes Cal drops by. No it problem. It Welcome. happens. Yeah. The fourth one, know that you're going to have to have difficult conversations with people, but it's important to have the conversation yet not leave that person feeling deflated. Make them feel inspired to change, to get better, right? So to know what's coming after they get better. Fifth one is seeing the big picture, but also being able to zoom into the details. Having that flexibility as a leader to go back and forth so that you can see both the large picture and the details, right? The forest and the trees. And the last universal skill is engaging with the world holistically, right? Which is slightly different from being able to zoom and zoom out. It's about making you as a leader, sensitive and inspiring. So people can look to you to help get things done. That was a big bucket. It was like, yeah. oh, wow. Every single one of those touched me. Third big bucket. You said you were really on her. It was great. What are some go-to steps that you can, that, to get somebody more emotionally aware of their emotional triggers? Now that's a lot of emotions in there, right? But you said, give us very the- emotional. <laughs> Give us a shortcut. Give us advice on where to start. Because at the end of the day, that's what people people want to know. Where do I start? She, I love the first one. Be brave. She only said three. Be brave, right? It takes courage to develop self-awareness. And that being brave involves being vulnerable and leaving aside your pride. The second one of the go-to steps, right? The shortcuts is get honest feedback about your leadership. Look at yourself, evaluate yourself, and then get 360 feedback and then compare the two. Oh my God, I've done that. Wow. What an amazing journey that is, because that's what's going to be able to shed light on the stories you tell yourself about yourself. Some of them may be true. Many of them are not. And the third shortcut is watch your behavior and discover the patterns. We are all creatures of habit. Pay attention to your response to people, but, and 
other people's response to you. What is happening in your leadership? Examine the cause and then going back to what you said in the first bucket, learn, so unlearn so that you can learn. Yeah. Fourth bucket. This one was so dead on because you asked her, okay, so the world isn't perfect. How does a leader that's working in a psychologically unsafe environment create the space to be vulnerable? Oh my God. I'm sure that the people listening, many of them are like, that's me. That's me. Right. That's important to know. She it's like, she said, start small. Don't boil the ocean. I think you said that don't boil the ocean, go where the momentum. What does that mean? Relationships happen one-on-one. So changing culture often starts with just the one-on-ones find a place to have, you know, honest, real conversations so that people know that you can have these vulnerable conversations one-on-one. They can show their weaknesses, they can show their doubts, and they can be okay, right? Take that very small step and then build on that. That was, it seems so simple and people might think that's hard, but if you only think about what meetings do I have that are one-on-ones and let's change those, that's a great place to start, don't you think? It is. It is, you know, for, for, for me personally, one of the things that I had to do was not, it's not even the one-on-ones. Those are sort of easy for me. It was bigger settings and understanding what are the things I'm a super emotional person, as you know, and like, what are the things that trigger emotions without me being in control of them? And it was a huge journey to identify the things. And one of the, and I didn't really get into this in too much detail, but I used to go down a, like I did this for about eight months till I learned muscles. You eventually build muscles. Um, what ver- what do I need to get out of this meeting? What do I need to assert? And that way you you show up with a different set of intentions. It sounds cheesy, but so many of us are running from thing to thing all day. We don't give ourselves the 15 minutes in between to be like, all right, what just happened? Great, I processed that. What's about to happen? What do I need to be like? What version of me needs to be there? Am I, in my case, am I the boss? Am I the supporter? Am I the coach? Am I pushing people? Because they're not meeting expectations. And I think, unless you're in control of your emotions, they will control you. Oh, and yes, particularly yes. in big companies, you, I have to say, I was saying this to Julio, who's um, a, a great friend of mine, great friend of yours, about, you know what, we, we can't control the environment our customers operate in. It's also not what they pay us to do. Yeah. We also yeah. can't take it personally. The way they react is a byproduct of the situation that they're in, right? Um, so having, having the ability to turn that on its head and be like, okay, where are they actually coming from? Exactly. helps you process and handle them better. And, um, it's, and it's not a vendor client thing. It's like as a business partner, as a, fu- honestly, as a fucking to- human being, right? Like- yes. Who do I need to be for them today? And I remember when I was on, on the other side, not the dark side, the agency side, but on the, on the um, CPG side, it was all about making relationships with my partners that helped me get through the day when the, the environment in the office was too much for me. Now I relied on them so much, but let me finish because with that, that is like the sixth bucket, but I'm on bucket five because Keep this going one, girlfriend, you just got me excited. <laughs> oh, that, we were both excited about this topic. So if bucket four was all about working in a, how to work in a psychologically unsafe environment, I'm going to continue that one, but I did separate them because bucket six, bucket five is all about how people in an unsafe environment, give their boss feedback. Because sometimes if you don't give the feedback, you're going to burst. And you know that giving feedback is something that's absolutely needed. But giving the feedback in the wrong way at the wrong time is worse than not giving feedback at all. So what she said, what Dr. Nora said, is a difficult conversation is best approached starting with yourself from a position of humility. That's amazing. Don't go there being accusatory. Keep the focus on what you're trying to accomplish 
right? Because it's all, and I, and I, I talk about a quote, I, as your direct report, really want to grow and want to move this agenda forward, but I'm frustrated. I'm coming to you for some insight. So this is not going to make, it's not going to be accusatory. It's not going to be, be feely, touchy-feely. It's going to be factual. This is what's going on with me. And that way you're not going to make them defensive, make it all about the job to be done and the role that you're playing in getting this job done and how much you want to get the job done and act as if the frustrating obstacles are not personal, even if you think they are, right? And you said something really important, anchor the conversation in a common goal versus attacking. Yes. Yeah. yeah, and I, I think that's key, right? Like what what is the purpose alignment? And this is one of the tensions. So like it, in our business, we've got a leadership framework that I hold our leaders very accountable to. We just, we just actually rolled it out this year. Um, one of the tensions is establish an ambitious growth vision the next bullet point is foster psychological safety. And you might say, well, those things are at odds. Nope. We're a for-profit business that's growing real fast. This isn't a therapy hour. Although I, I got a lot of time for therapy, by the way. And if you can afford it, do it seriously. But the reason why psychological safety links to ambitious growth is if you're able to have a really hard conversation with someone as a human, and align that the and, and sort of identify where shared goals do and don't exist. You can go faster. It's not to sit in a circle and do hippy dippy things. It's 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 actually because you can connect with people on a different level, understand when your purpose is aligned or when it's misaligned, and look that things change, right? Like you could you could enter into a work relationship with the best of intentions, and someone's purpose may have changed, their motivations may have changed, what have you. And so having that vulnerability with other people is key. But I think the thing you said there is so important. Be vulnerable with yourself. Be self-aware. I can't tell you how many people I work with who have zero self-awareness. And some of it is because they've got masks and armor, but like, you, you know, and I, I'm, I mean, you know, some, we talked about this in the interview, some of this is societal, right? Like kids are told because I said so when they're seven. And so curiosity gets beaten out of them. Oh, yeah. um, you know, you should hear some of the conversations I have with my six-year-old. I talk to him like he's a 40-year-old man because he's curious. He wants to know the answer. I'm not going to... Not gonna bullshit the kid. I want to, you know, I want to foster that curiosity. And I think in business, we we don't prioritize curiosity and learning. We prioritize production. Yeah. But ninety percent of the shit we launch fails. Yes. Imagine if we stopped and asked a few more questions. We go a lot faster, you know. And I think it's something that I, in the product of in the software product development space, you see a lot of product discovery is more important than product delivery because if you if you understand the customer's problem, well, then it's easy to innovate a solution, you know? Exactly. Now your segue, that was a perfect segue into bucket number six, right? Which are like the last of the big buckets. The last, the, the, the bonus, number seven is a bonus. Bonus, I love yes. it. So number six bucket, emotional intelligence versus emotions in business. This is huge because you just said that hippie dippy, you know, love stuff or the icky, you know, it depends on how you call it, but it's not, emotional intelligence is not about, you know, that because sometimes it may not be appropriate to look for emotional gratification from your work or from your boss or from your team. Emotional intelligence is not about that. It's being aware of your own baggage and knowing yep. how to manage your emotions so that they don't manage you. Emotions, as you said, are not the same as passions. Passions have every right to be at the at the workspace. Emotions need to be understood and channeled appropriately so that you can be passionate, but in control so you can focus on the work objectives. As a leader, you're facilitating and creating a space where work can happen, successful work can happen. And it's not just the work, it's the personal and professional growth of your team, 
right? And it takes maturity to be a good leader, maturity to know that things are not perfect, that people are not perfect. So we have to find the gifts of imperfection, I think was the phrase that, that the two of you used. And you have to hold the space for people to fail because if you're not failing, you're not innovating. 100%. Exactly. Build in those systems you said that are sustainable, that are built on adaptability, Nora said, right? Part of adaptability is failing, knowing where the weak spots are, and then building from those, adjusting the way according to the weak spots. It's not about the chain being only as strong as the weak point. Yeah, that's true. The chain is strong, end of sentence, because you're going to figure out how to adapt if it breaks. That's what's going to make that chain stronger. You know, there's a culture, there's something in and I don't remember the culture, so I'm not even going to try to remember it, but they take, and instead of throwing away vases, right, when they break, or instead of trying to fix them in a way that the the the, the, uh, the tears or the, the marks of where the pieces get joined are not visible, because there's a way of doing that too, they take the vase and they put some color, the glue with color, like whether it's a contrasting color, so that the lines where the break was are visible because it makes a more beautiful piece of art. And it, it's you're able to put stronger glue and more visible glue if you're not worrying about being invisible. That's a beautiful learning that fits exactly with this bucket. Imperfection is not the, perfection is not the goal. It's working with the imperfection and finding the weak spots to grow more. That's amazing. Honestly, perfectly polished people bore me too. <laughs> Like, we're all flawed, right? Like, what it's, the hell? I haven't know? met the first one yet. I've met some people who try to pretend. Now, ready for the for the bonus? <laughs> I love the spin the two of you ended up with this one. We've just been talking about, you know, for with Nora and then the six buckets of absolute gold that she's given us, right? And it's all about awareness and knowing, knowing who you are and knowing the people around you. And as a leader, being able to to foster and build an environment. Well, let's turn all of those six buckets that we just learned to this bonus one and understand that we have just survived, quote unquote, right? Or evolved, quote unquote, through a pandemic as a world. And Zoom was a large part of being able to continue business as usual, as much as possible. Now, like any good tool, like any tool, like anything, whether it be a bike, a car, roller skates, you know, a, a good knife, if you don't use things properly, they're going to be bad. So this is all about not blaming Zoom, but understanding that if you're a leader with high emotional intelligence, you have to be able to recognize some things. And after the pandemic, after working 24 seven, after being home alone with, or with your family or whatever, things happen. So what are the tips to, being, to making sure that you're gonna be a leader with high emotional intelligence that loves Zoom or works within Zoom? Here we go. Number one, take breaks between meetings so that you can just ponder what you just met about and ponder what you're about to meet so that you can breathe or go to the bathroom. Yep. Number two, during the day, go outside, look around, breathe. Some people, myself included, find that the whole day passed and I didn't see. I saw the window that there was sun and then there was no sun. That's not healthy. Don't do that. No, it's not. It's not cool. Can't do exactly. it. Number three, be aware of energy levels. Yours, the teams, each individual member of the teams, the meeting, be aware of it and be able to say, okay, we're not getting somewhere. Let's stop. Let's do something different. Right. Number four, encourage outcome, not productivity. You just said that we're not going to be like, Taskmasters, we have to look for, you know, the outcome, not just produce, 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 not, we're not punching a time clock here, right? Do virtual one-on-ones while walking outside. You and I do our walk. Sometimes we get to do it in person. Sometimes we get to do it virtually. If you're stuck with a problem, stop, 
go outside. Right. I'm sensing a pattern here, Ryan. Do 20 minute meetings, not 30 minute meetings, or do 50 minute meetings, not one hour meetings. Maybe 25, I'll accept. But don't have to use the full hour. You don't. Right. And the last one, I saved the best for last. Make Ooh. it part of your business strategy to make sure people are engaged. People's brains are, fr- are dying because they're fried. Help them come back, re-energized, yep. refreshed. And with that, I say thank you, Nora, and thank you, Ryan. Oh, that was so fun. Nora, love you to pieces. Thank you for everything. Um, but you're, I mean, I, I like point three. I'll tell you a story. Um, I had a big topic for our leadership team last week. And do you know that I canceled it? Because everybody was burnt out and tired. And so we, we actually did self-coaching. Way more productive than jamming the topic through. Because when we talked about the topic the next week, guess what happened? They were ready. Very different. Right. You know? Exactly. I did something similar with my offsite for CT recently, last week. Um, I didn't have times on the agenda. I just had topics. And these yeah, are the topics. And this is an order of priority. Let's work on this. It was great. Yeah, and we were walking and we kept talking while we were walking about personal things or not. It was great. It was amazing. I love it. This was a fun episode. I'm, I appreciate uh, my colleagues letting me do it and running with my crazy ideas. Um, we got two episodes left. Our next episode is with Jennifer Picard from Perno Ricard. Interesting rhyme there. I didn't know that was going to rhyme. Um, Jennifer has done more to democratize insights than, I'm going to say this, bold statement, anybody else I know in the consumer insights industry, period. Nobody else has democratized insights more than this woman has. In a year, she's made it so that marketers are using insights approved tools to test their ads in stride so they can make better ads. And guess what insights people gets to do, Patricia? Be insights people. What the freak? Woohoo! I can't wait to share this story with y'all. Please don't miss it. Subscribe. Please rate us five stars. Helps more friends get it. Tell your friends. Tune into Jen's episode. Seriously, it's going to make you a little uncomfortable. But I will remind you, insights people, you didn't become a market research person to manage projects all day, did you? You love consumers. You love psychology. You love marketing science, technology. If you use it right, we'll let you do that all day. And Jen's going to show you how next episode. I can't wait to share it with you. Thank you, Patricia. Thank Thank you, Kelsey. Thank you, Judith. Thank you, Emma. Thank you to our listeners. Love you to pieces. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Chowder. Chowder.